0: Hello and welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is Journeys from the Past and my name is Andy Davis. The purpose of these podcasts is to inspire listeners to courageous sacrificial actions, to make progress in the two journeys, the internal journey of holiness and the external journey of evangelism and missions by learning the stories of our heroic brothers and sisters in the past. Now, as we begin our podcast today, I want to bring you across 15 centuries to a slender pinnacle of rock 18 miles west of the coast of Ireland. It is regularly buffeted by storms and pounded continually by the cold northern Atlantic surf. It's shaped somewhat like a pyramid, but it has twin peaks that jut upward 700 feet toward the usually overcast skies. Its sides are extremely steep with dramatic rocky cliffs that overlook the Atlantic waves. It's called Skellig Michael, Michael named for the Archangel Michael, and Skellig, an old Gaelic word, meaning splinter of stone. It's hard to believe that, according to historian Kenneth Clark, all of Western civilization, and Western Christianity indeed, clung by the skin of its teeth to places like Skellig Michael in the sixth century for in this austere place there was a monastery of tenacious monks who diligently copied the texts of all classical libraries of the now collapsed Roman Empire preserving them for posterity from the depredations and destructions of the hordes of barbarians who had overwhelmed Rome at the last and were burning anything they didn't consider of any value. Scrolls with writing on them meant very little to the Vandals and Goths and Visigoths and Huns. As they swept through the streets of Rome, the so-called Eternal City, they scooped up gold and silver and marble and other valuable materials, but the scrolls of Latin and Greek texts in the libraries were quickly consigned to the flames of ignorant destruction. This was the beginning of the so-called Dark Ages. But, according to Clark and also fellow historian Thomas Cahill, it was the Irish that saved civilization. A hitherto untold story, before Cahill clarified it, of how obscure Irish monks played a heroic role in preserving classical learning from the fall of Rome uh, to the rise of medieval Europe, like they stand in a hinge between those two great eras, the Classical Age and the Middle Ages. It was only by the skin of our teeth, as Clark said, that the flickering ember of classical learning in the West was not entirely snuffed out. And these obscure Irish monks were the heroes of that rescue. Cahill celebrated this rescue in his book, How the Irish Saved Civilization, with these words, quote, What was about to be lost in the century of barbarian invasions was literature, the content of classical education. Had the destruction been complete, had every library been disassembled and every book burned, we might have lost Homer and Virgil and all of classical poetry, Herodotus and Tacitus and all of classical history. Demosthenes and Cicero and all of classical oratory, Plato and Aristotle and all of Greek philosophy, and Plotinus and Porphyry and all the subsequent commentary. We would have lost the taste and smell of a whole civilization. Twelve centuries of lyric beauty, aching tragedy, intellectual inquiry, scholarship, sophistry, and love of wisdom, the acme of ancient civilized discourse, would all have gone down the drain of a history, end quote. Well, what is civilization? What do we mean by that? According to Kenneth Clark, who did a, a series called Civilization at the end of the 1970s, a TV series, very popular, it goes beyond the day-to-day struggle of survival and the night-to-night struggle against terror. It develops the qualities of thought and feeling and art so that they might approach as closely as possible the ideal of perfection, reason, justice, physical beauty, all of them balanced in equilibrium through myths, dance and song, through systems of philosophy and through the order man has imposed on the visible world. That's Kenneth Clark. So these Irish monks living simple and austere lives on the windswept buffeted crags of Skellig Michael and other remote locations around Ireland, as they diligently bent over their manuscripts and copied them, they were keeping alive that flickering coal of human civilization rescued from the now-destroyed libraries of Rome. And though they were ardent Christians, they seemed not to care whether what they were copying was Christian or pagan. It was learning, and they felt it must be preserved. Now, for our purposes here in Two Journeys, it is interesting to think about and debate how valuable this classical literature of pagan Greece and pagan Rome has been. This classical learning was not done in the name of Christ, was not informed by the Judeo-Christian heritage at all. It falls in the realm of what we would call, at best, common grace, God giving to pagans amazingly helpful insights in science and math and literature and music and art that enriched our lives. But far more valuable for me as a Christian, as I think about church history, is the role that these Irish monks played in copying the scriptures and setting up missionary monasteries, burning with passion for the spread of the gospel across, across the British Isles and across northern Europe. This is an amazing story of God's providence, and these are some of the hidden heroes of that story. And in heaven, we're going to meet these obscure people. We're going to be able to celebrate their labors and what they contributed under the grace of God to the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And the key human figure for us today in today's podcast is someone Irish people celebrate every March 17th on St. Paddy's Day. We're talking about St. Patrick, a hero of the church. So today we're going to study Patrick's life and the courageous and loving missionary work he did to win the Irish to the gospel. God willing, next time, we'll study the Irish monasteries under Columba and his successors that spread the gospel in the century that follows. So, two different stories, this podcast and two different stories. So first, let's talk, talk about the story of a boy named Patricius, Patricius, a slave boy who returned a missionary. So, we begin at the fall of Rome and the rise of barbarian lawlessness, as we saw last time with Augustine the sack of Rome by Alaric and the Visigoths in the year 410 with earth-shaking, Jerome in his cave in the Middle East, the one who translated the Bible into the Latin, the Vulgate, he thought it was the end of the world. As more and more barbarian tribes contributed to the ultimate fall and the destruction of the Western Roman Empire, Augustine wrote his timeless defense of a Christian view of history, the City of God arguing that the city of man, represented by human empires like Rome, would rise and fall, rise and fall, one after the other. But the city of God would be built step by step by the gospel. Now Augustine died in the year 430 as 80,000 barbarians called Vandals were ready to sack his own city of Hippo in North Africa. But even while he died, God was preparing another servant to play a key role in the preservation of the scriptures and the advance of the gospel. So between the sack of Rome by Alaric in 410 and the death of the last western Roman emperor in the year 476, the empire became more and more unstable. And a world in chaos is not a world in which books were copied by hand and read and studied. People in such a chaotic world did not have the leisure to become well-educated. Rising terror and lawlessness was the order of the day. The borders of the empire were contracting. Armies of the Goths and then of the Huns were driving westward over the Danube River and then marching up and down the Italian peninsula, causing panic and leaving desolation in their wake. Libraries in particular were wiped out entirely. Rome entirely withdrew from the British Isles, leaving those lands to be raided and plundered and terrorized by German Angles and Saxons. One of the worst parts of that era was the wholesale enslavement of previously free Roman men and women. Slavery was lucrative business. Individuals would be plundered by some band and then ransomed by another group, only to be forced to slave for that second group. One group that regularly took part in these slave raids were the Celts of Ireland, a wild pagan band who were excellent sailors and fierce warriors, the Celts. Cahill, in his book, How the Irish Saved Civilization, talks about a typical raid. Just before dawn, a small war party would move its stealthy little skin-covered sailing crafts into a little cove, approach an isolated farmhouse with silent strides, grab some sleeping children and be halfway back to Ireland before anyone knew what had happened." Doesn't that sound terrifying? But the Irish also moved in larger war parties as well. Somewhere around the year 401, a great fleet of black Irish sailboats swept up the western coast of Britain, moving probably into the Severn estuary, and seized many thousands of captives and returned with them to the slave markets of Ireland. One of those seized was a 16-year-old boy named Patricius, the man we know today as St. Patrick. At that point he was just a Romanized British native, not English, for as I mentioned the English were Angles who had come later from Germany, but Patricius was a Romanized native of Britain. So he was not Roman, he was not Latin, but he was Romanized, he was Britain, British. Amazingly, then, the patron saint of Ireland was not Irish at all, but British. Isn't that remarkable? The information we have for Patrick's life comes mostly from his own confession, similar to Augustine's confession, a written document describing his story, autobiographical. Patrick tells us that his father, Calpurnius, was actually a Roman tax collector, and that his grandfather, Potius, had been a Catholic priest. So Patrick was being groomed to be a middle-class Roman Briton, preparing by classical education for a mildly prosperous life. He had no interest in following in his father's footsteps as a tax collector, and the Catholic religion of his grandfather sat pretty lightly on him. He was not converted, really. He was not an especially pious young man as a teenager when he was kidnapped into slavery. His captors took him to Ireland, to a place called Antrim, where he was made an enslaved shepherd boy. He was owned by a tribal chieftain named Miliuch. As he tended the sheep day and night in all kinds of Irish weather through the seasons of the year, God was doing a deep and profound work on his soul. Patrick said, I was chastened exceedingly and humbled in truth by hunger and nakedness every day. Let's talk a little bit about pagan Ireland. What the culture and the country was like at that point. The land of the Irish at that point was wild, utterly pagan. It was rent by feuding and warring small clans, like the modern-day mafiosi in Sicily. The Celts were sexually immoral. They were violent, continually at strife and warfare with each other. They were deeply spiritual. They believed in gods and goddesses and magic spells and human sacrifice. What was Patrick's life as a shepherd slave? Well, it was miserable. His Irish overlord did not care for his well-being or survival except to serve the function as a shepherd. As he cared for the sheep, he was bitterly isolated. He spent months alone in the hills. And since he was so isolated, it took him a long time to learn the language and the customs of his captors. He was continually hungry and continually naked. He was stripped of all human dignity The constant gnaw in his belly and the harsh burn of the weather on his skin ripped at his mind and depressed his heart. But there was one consolation. His isolation out in the hills gave him abundant time to pray and to become acquainted with the God of his Christian father and grandfather. Patrick wrote this, Tending flocks was my daily work, and I would pray constantly during the daylight hours. The love of God and the fear of him surrounded me more and more. And faith grew, and the Spirit was roused within me, so that in one day I would say as many as one hundred prayers, and after dark, nearly that many again, even while I remained in the woods or on the mountain. I would wake and pray before daybreak, through snow, frost, rain, nor was there any sluggishness in me, such as I experience nowadays, because then the Spirit within me was ardent. Patrick endured six years of this harsh isolation, and by the end of it, he had been transformed from a careless, immature boy to effectively an ardent, visionary man of God, a visionary for whom there was very little separation between this world and the Heavenly One. Finally, the time came for his escape. On the last night he would spend as Miliuch's slave, he received in his sleep his first otherworldly experience. A mysterious voice spoke to him. Your hungers are rewarded, it said. You are going home. Patrick sat up, startled by the voice, but then the voice continued. Behold, your ship is ready. Well, Miliouch's farm was inland, nowhere near the sea, but Patrick set out, having no idea where he was going. He walked over 200 miles through territory he had never seen before in his life. Yet he was never once stopped, never followed. He was not asked any questions which a runaway slave like him would have had a hard time answering. Finally, he reached a southeastern inlet. Thomas Cahill thinks it was near Wexford. As he walked walked toward his destiny, his faith that he was being led and protected by Almighty God must have grown to a huge degree for it seems almost impossible that a fugitive slave like him could have made such progress without God's intervention, without God's help. So Patrick wrote, I came in God's strength and therefore I had nothing to fear. Patrick went down to the dock where some sailors were loading a cargo of Irish hounds for sale on the European continent. Patrick approached the captain who must have eyed him suspiciously. Somehow, we don't know how, Patrick had money for the passage, but the captain cut him off and said he was wasting his time and that he would never be sailing with his crew. Patrick was in great danger at this point. It would be almost impossible for him in a port town like that not to be recognized as a fugitive slave. And if the captain would not take him, effectively he was lost. Patrick wrote, hearing the captain's response, I left them to go to a hut where I'd been staying and on the way I began to pray. Before I had even finished my prayer, I heard one of the sailors shouting out after me, Come quickly, they're calling you. And right away I returned to them, and they said, Come on board, we'll take you on trust. They sailed for the continent, and it took three days to get there. We don't know exactly where the ship landed, but when they disembarked and journeyed inland, they found only a deserted land with nothing to eat, though they walked through it for two weeks Modern scholars struggle to line Patrick's account up with the Europe we know now from history that was going on at that time. But it might have been maybe the year 407, when German barbarian hordes were ravaging lands everywhere, leaving nothing in their wake, nothing of value. So that would be the deserted land that Patrick was walking through. Patrick and all the men uh, who had gotten off the ship were very close to starving to death. Some of them were collapsing, half dead by the side of the road. But then suddenly, at this point, the captain turned to this religious young man and taunted him. What about it, Christian? You say that your God is great and powerful. Why can't you pray for us? We're starving to death, and there's little chance of us seeing a living soul. So Patrick's faith at that moment filled him. It's a key juncture in his life. He said to the captain and to the men, From the bottom of my heart, I tell you, turn trustingly to the Lord my God, for nothing is impossible with him. And today he will send you food for your journey until you are filled, for he has abundance everywhere. What a statement to make just on faith. But God was leading him. Patrick's sincere faith moved the sailors. They all bowed their heads in prayer with him for God to provide food. Suddenly they heard the sound of a stampede. They all raised their heads and they saw a large herd of pigs rushing straight for them on the road. Pigs, their favorite meat. This was a direct answer to prayer. Well, after that amazing occurrence, it took Patrick another few years to get home. We don't really know what happened in those years. But at last, however, Patricius makes it back to his family in Britain. He is welcomed as a lost son returning home, and his parents beg him never to leave them again. But all these experiences have profoundly changed him. He's not the teenager he was. He has been hardened into the strong man of God that he would be the rest of his life by his years of suffering, and he has a deep, profound faith in God. Soon after returning home, he has a powerful dream or vision during the night. He sees a man that he knew in Ireland, one named Victoricus, holding countless letters. He selects one and hands it over to Patrick, who reads the heading on the letter. It says, the voice of the Irish at the top. At that moment in the vision, he hears the voice of a multitude of people crying out to him. He is beside a forest near the Western Sea, what we would know today as the Irish Sea that separates Britain from Ireland. These people cry with one voice. We beg you to come and walk with us once more. It is Patrick's Macedonian call, like the one that the Apostle Paul experienced in Acts 16, where he had seen a vision of a man of Macedonia saying, come over and help us. Patrick felt stabbed to the heart by this vision. Come and walk among us once again, holy youth. And the plaintive and desperate call of the Irish people to come back. No matter how much he tried, Patrick could not push the vision or its meaning from his mind. He actually starts having more visions at this point, including Christ Himself speaking from within His heart. He who gave His life for you, He it is who is speaking within You. As Cahill put it at this amazing moment in redemptive history, Patricius, the escaped slave, is about to be drafted once more as St. Patrick, Apostle to the Irish nation. It is an amazing moment in redemptive history because Patrick may well be the first missionary to a truly wild and barbarian people. Paul went on three missionary journeys, but it was always within the classical Greco-Roman world that he knew very well. That is in no way to minimize it or the danger, for he suffered greatly, more than any other missionary I know in history. But he was fluent in Greek and was a Roman citizen. This was his culture. And everywhere he went, there were already Jewish synagogues and he always began there. That was his culture as well. Patrick, on the other hand, ventured into a land characterized by an utterly wild, dark, violent, pagan people. It was not his culture. Rather, they had been his captors. In order to train for his mission, Patrick had to make up for lost time academically. Because of his capture at age 16, he was hopelessly behind in his schooling. He followed the visions and inner voice to a monastery in Gaul, probably the island monastery of Larians. Offshore from modern day Cannes. There he endured the rigors of academic training, studying in order to be ordained as a deacon. After finishing his training, he is ultimately ordained, not just as a deacon, but as a priest and as a bishop. Cahill said he's probably the first missionary bishop. Patrick spoke of this commitment uh, later in his life. He said, The gospel has been preached to the point beyond which there is no one meaning nothing but the ocean. In other words, he went beyond into nothingness spiritually. And Patrick, at the moment that he set out from Ireland, was fully aware of the great dangers that would face him. Every day, he said, I am ready to be murdered, betrayed, enslaved, whatever may come my way. But I am not afraid of any of these things because of the promise of heaven, for I have put myself in the hands of God Almighty. He knew that if he died, he'd go to heaven. He knew that if he were afflicted and persecuted, he would be rewarded in heaven. It was heavenly mindset that drove him on as a missionary. So what is the timeline here? Patrick was originally kidnapped in the year 401. He escaped in the year 407, ordained in the year 430, all right, so 23 years later, returned to Ireland in 432 at the age of 47. So he's a 47-year-old man at this point going back to Ireland. Now Let's speak of Patrick's love for the Irish people. Patrick's love for the Irish people shines out of his writings about them. He describes them as individuals that he knew them to be, and he seems to delight in their attributes. He worries constantly for the welfare of the people, both spiritually and physically. He is noteworthy in his abhorrence of slavery, and he speaks up for the slaves whom he led to faith in Christ, especially the women. Patrick wrote, It is the women kept in slavery who suffer the most and who keep their spirits up despite the menacing and terrorizing that they must endure. The Lord gives grace to his many handmaids, and though they are forbidden to follow Christ, they do so anyway, and they do it with a backbone. What a great statement. We're going to meet those those women Christian heroes in heaven. Well, Ireland was gradually transformed by the gospel that Patrick How did Patrick win these wild pagans, these Celts, to faith in Christ? Well, in his last years, he could look over an Ireland, radically transformed by his patient and wise proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. According to tradition, he established bishops throughout northern, central, and eastern Ireland. He associated bishoprics with local kingships, not so much to curry favor with the kings and use their power and money, as a lot of others did, Actually, Cahill argues that he did it more to keep an eye on the kings, their tyrannies and their depredations, because they were all powerful raiders and rustlers and kidnappers. The Ireland he won to Christ had no population centers of any kind. There were no cities. They were just scattered and isolated farmsteads. He was amazingly successful in his evangelistic preaching. He hated slavery with a passion. And Cahill argues, and this is significant, that Patrick was the first human being in the history of the world to speak out unequivocally against slavery itself, not merely the excesses of it. That's amazing, isn't it? Think of the significance of that, the first to ever just come straight out against slavery. Within his lifetime, or soon after his death, the Irish slave trade came to a complete halt as a result of his preaching. The Irish stopped plundering uh, and making slaves. Other forms of violence like murder and intertribal warfare also decreased greatly. He established monasteries and convents throughout Ireland, training those in them to shine with the light of Christ and display the virtues of lifelong faithfulness, courage, and generosity. He showed them that the sword was not the only way to set up and run a society. He powerfully preached against British slave traders petty kings who did the same thing to the Irish that the Irish marauders had done to Patrick. These petty kings along the western coastline of Britain rushed to fill in the power vacuum by the collapse of the Roman Empire and the absence of Roman legions. They began to carve out new territories for themselves and to plunder each other and the neighboring Irish countryside. Some of these British kings claimed to be Christians but were actually stealing some of Patrick's converts by the thousands and enslaving them. So, Patrick violently protested what they were doing, sent a delegation of priests to the court of one of these kings, Carodacus, with the hope of ransoming or releasing some of the captives. But the delegation was laughed to scorn. So, Patrick wrote an open letter to all British Christians in an attempt to put pressure on Carodacus. It is filled with the passion that Patrick has for his flock of Irish Christians. This is what he wrote, ravening wolves, eating up the people of the Lord as if they were bread, I beseech you earnestly, it is not right to pay court to such men, nor take food or drink in their company, nor is it right to accept their alms, until they, by doing strict penance with shedding tears, make amends before God, and free the servants of God, and the baptized handmaidens of Christ, for whom he died. This is a crime so horrible and unspeakable, talking about slavery. Almost certainly, Patrick's passion comes from his own memories. Of his life as a slave. Possibly the British Christians did not recognize the Irish Christians as their brothers and sisters in Christ. Patrick writes, in sadness and grief shall I cry aloud, O most lovely and loving brothers and sons whom I have begotten in Christ. I cannot number them. What shall I do for you? I am not worthy to come to the aid of either God or men. The wickedness of the wicked has prevailed against us. We are become, as it were, strangers. Can it be that they do not believe that we have received one baptism, or that we have one God and Father? Is it a shameful thing in their eyes that we have been born in Ireland?" Quote. Isn't that amazing? He so identifies with the Irish Christians that he includes himself with them as those who were born in Ireland. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9, To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law I became like one not having the law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. Well, that's what Patrick did. Totally identified himself effectively as Irish. Cahill writes that the British Christians did not recognize the Irish Christians either as full-fledged Christians or even as human beings, because they were not Romans. They'd never been under Rome's law or language or culture, so they saw them as wild barbarians. By this time in the Roman Empire, post-Constantine, it was almost like being Roman was being Christian and vice versa. But Patrick's fiery letters earned him the wrath of some of the powerful British clergy, and yet his greatness cannot be denied. His love for his Irish converts, who were so abused and stolen and murdered, was so powerful. He wrote, O most dear ones, I can see you beginning the journey to the land where there is no night, nor sorrow, nor death. Speaking of heaven, You shall reign with the apostles and prophets and martyrs. You shall seize the everlasting kingdoms, as he himself has promised, when he said they shall come from the east and the west, and shall sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Unlike Augustine, Patrick did not wallow in the inner recesses of his own sin nature and brood over it. He had a very bright, optimistic view of the grace of God that even slave traders can turn into liberators, that even murderers can act as peacemakers, even barbarians can take their place among the nobility of heaven. Patrick, and his wonder-working prayer for food in the deserted land, and his visionary leading, connected well with the spirituality of former Druids and Celtic mystics. The legends that surround him are impossible to authenticate, perhaps you've heard some of them. most famous is that he drove all the snakes out of Ireland, also that he used the shamrock to explain the Trinity. A famous prayer is ascribed to him, it cannot be proven, but this kind of sums up his theology. It's called St. Patrick's Breastplate. And this is what it says I arise today through a mighty strength in the invocation of the Trinity, through belief in the threeness, through confession of the oneness of the Creator of creation. I rise today through the strength of Christ's birth with his baptism, through the strength of his crucifixion with his burial, through the strength of his resurrection with his ascension, through the strength of his descent for the judgment of doom. I arise today in the strength of heaven, in the light of the sun, in the radiance of the moon, in the splendor of fire, the speed of lightning, the swiftness of wind, the depth of the sea, the stability of the earth, the firmness of rock. I arise today through God's strength to pilot me, through God's might to uphold me, through God's wisdom to guide me, through God's eye to look before me. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in the eye of everyone that sees me, and in every ear that hears me. Well, next time we're going to talk about the monks, the monasteries that Patrick set up, and the heritage of missionary work that flowed from them. We're going to talk about how the Irish not only saved civilization, but more importantly, how they saved the scriptures and spread the gospel, and helped spread the gospel even to the ends of the earth. So as we conclude today, I want you to go into your week knowing that your loving Heavenly Father holds your life and all your ways in His hands. Nothing can happen to you apart from His will. He orchestrates the rise and fall of mighty empires and the death of sparrows that no one ever sees. He has numbered the very hairs of your head and all the days ordained for you were written in his book before one of them came to be. And he has gone ahead of you to prepare specific good works for you to walk in, good works that are essential to his kingdom that he is building, his eternal kingdom. Just as your brothers and sisters in Christ live for his glory in their day, so do the same in yours. By the power of his Spirit, the glory of His Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this resource from TwoJourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at TwoJourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.